So Noah, we've got this book. We're, we're still talking about Albuni, but I feel like we're not talking about Albuni. Anymore. We're talking about a book, the Shams Al Ma'arif. No, Shams Al Kubra, because there's well, well recensions ago. Tell me about what we're talking about. What we're talking about is uh, if we let's, let's start at the modern end this time. Okay. So there is uh, a book uh, known either as Shams Al Ma'arif, the the son of knowledge and the, the subtleties of the Gnostics. Uh, or often as Shemsam Aref al-Kubra, the great or the greater son of knowledge, etc., etc. This book has a reputation these days as the the book on Islamic magic or the book on magic in Arabic. Many modern Muslims would say that Islamic magic is an oxymoron. That's a whole other discussion. Uh, but it has a fearsome reputation. I have met several people who, who you know, grew up in Saudi Arabia and other, other parts of, the, of the, the Sunni world who will talk about in their teenage years, somebody would have a copy of Shem Samadif and it would get passed around furtively you know, at, the, at the party with all the boys. Uh, the idea was if you read one complete page of the text, demons would pop up and bring you down to hell in the moment and all that. I mean, it has this kind of a reputation. I saw some poor young man on Reddit a couple of weeks ago who was deathly concerned that he had accidentally read part of it wow. in another text and that, that he damned himself by doing so and whatnot. So it has this, this fearsome reputation. And Albuni's reputation has gone with it. This is why Albuni's name is, is, it is pretty much only associated with this book in the modern period. And at the level of scholarship, it hasn't really done him any favors either. Uh, for a long time, scholars of Islamic intellectual history, cultural history, just said, well, magic's not Islamic, uh, so any magic you get is popular, and it's silly, and it really doesn't have anything to do with Islamic thought. And scholars who should have known better, scholars who were philologists and manuscript scholars and all this, uh, simply based their opinions of Albuni on printed editions of this Shabzamana Falkubra, and were content uh, despite glaring anachronisms, despite uh, one common version of it mentions America. <laughs> right. you know? And yet people still confidently attribute it, including in a recent edition, confidently attributed it to the 13th century magician, Ahmed al So, how did we get here? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a long story. So Ahmed al did indeed write a book called Shams al-Maraf, what a that is, again, mainly on sort of esoteric cosmology. It's a relatively short work. It's about 60 folia. Fairly opaque. Certainly not a grimoire. Yeah. Uh, anything like that. However, sometime as early as the early 14th century, maybe even the end of the 13th, someone else put together a text that they called Jemsamahadav, that includes significant chunks of Albuni's actual writings. There are some significant chunks in his Latala Farashadat, uh, certain pieces of Aluma Anoraniya, uh, uh, but then also pieces by some other authors, uh, most notably Ibn Talha, who's this wonderful sort of Damascene seer who has all these apocalyptic visions of the future and this whole encounter with Ali bin Abi Talib in a dream and stuff. Wow. Big parts of Ibn Talha's text get just sort of pirated into, into this text. This text goes on to be immensely popular. By the 14th and 15th centuries, it is everywhere. Uh, there are from very modest copies of it to, to finely gilded, very expensive copies of it made for court settings and all that. It is, as 
Jean-Charles Colon, uh, I think he just said this in conversation once, I don't think he put it in his article on this, but he said, in a sense, it's magic for dummies, it significantly. So it's a how-to manual. It is more, it is fairly how-to, although it has lots of other bits. It would still, I would say, be pretty hard to, like, know how to do much from the book. There are a few specific operations that are, that are laid out, uh, and a whole lot of vibes, you know, uh, uh, about, about magic. But it was very popular, and, and in a sense, it's magic for dummies because it's magic for politicians. It is, it is aimed squarely at, at court bureaucrats. I, I would say, and John Charles has argued this at, at more length, that it's, it's aimed at a courtly, a courtly crowd worried about getting things done and protecting themselves and, and other stuff. Right, like that. so how to avoid the wrath of kings. Yeah, that, that sort of thing, and how to, how to doom your enemies and, and all that. Um, so that book goes on to be immensely popular uh, and stays that, stays that way. At some point in the very late 16th century, you start to get texts called Shemsam Araf al-Kubra, and al-Kubra, you know, can just mean, like, the expanded version, uh, yeah. or, or something to that effect. And it is indeed much expanded. These go from the the uh, uh, the original copies of these, again, not the authentic work, but of this this other Shemsam Araf. I've called it the uh, courtly Shems, just for my own... Uh, sake of keeping things straight as opposed to the authentic Shams. The Courtly Shams is, I'd have to look at my notes, I want to say around 110, 120 folio, which of course varying by handwriting and all that, but you know, it's a it's not a short book, but it's not the longest book in the world. Shams of Cobra, on the other hand, can often be 600, 600 folio, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes even two volume sets, I and mean, it gets there, there's some quite massive uh, versions of it. And what's the additional material there? It's been added to the. Yeah, I just refer to it as a miscellany. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. There's some alchemy in there. There's all manner of, of prayers and talismans and the rod of Moses and and all these things. It, in some ways, is more like what modern scholars accuse Albuni of being. It's a it's a, it's a hodgepodge of, of stuff. You know, uh, I don't know that I would call it popular, but it's a, it's a hodgepodge of of materials. Mm. So people would look at it and they'd read this whole thing through and say, this is completely incoherent because Albuni is incoherent because magic is incoherent and we can continue to safely ignore this stuff, you know. And of course it's incoherent because it's a hodgepodge of materials from various places of the different, uh, even the different numbering systems. If you're ever curious about a book attributed to Albuni, you know there are two different systems of abjad of, of numerical values for letters. There's the, the Western system and the Eastern system. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, what we're talking about here is the, the same way of doing numeration that we get in Hebrew, medieval Hebrew, from the late antique period onwards, and that we originally got in, back in Greek, back in the Hellenistic period. Namely, every letter of the alphabet has a number, but it doesn't go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. It goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 1, 100, 200, 300, 400. So that's how you write numbers. That's why it's so obvious that numbers and letters are the same thing right. to some degree. Yeah. Um, and abjad, when people say abjad, what they mean is a, a particular ordering of the Arabic alphabet, which isn't the normal one that you write down that you find in like an Arabic grammar book. It goes al, alif, ba, ta, uh, jim, alif, ba, jim, etc., and so that's the order you use when you're doing numerals. It's not the order you, you use when you're yeah, not doing other stuff. Yeah. So that's abjad. Please continue. Well, and there are two different versions. Right, there's those, the Maghribi and the, what, the standard? Mashraki, you know, yeah. uh, Western okay. and Eastern. 
Uh, and they only vary a little bit. It's, you know, four, four numbers, I think, that, that kind of switch values. Um, but if you ever want to check, I mean, one of the, one of the easy checks to do on a, on a so-called Boonian text is if they use the Masraki or the Makrabi, because he was from the Makrab, and all of his authentic works use the Makrabi system. Right. So it's a bit of a clue um, there. That's great. But there's a complete jumble of it in the Kubra of, of Masraki and, and Makrabi. They're, they're hilarious. There's one copy of Watama Fadashala, a beautiful copy, uh, produced in Egypt uh, in the uh, 14th century, 15th century, somewhere in there, where someone has, there's a table of letters and values and all that, that probably originally had the correct ones, in other words, ones that fit the Makrabi system that Albuni would have used, and someone has come along with medieval whiteout, which was a thing, has come along with medieval whiteout and corrected the right. table to make it fit Masriki values because obviously they just thought this was wrong and so they fixed it. Amazing. Um, so yes, you can always, uh, you know, it's a, it, that's typical of the Cobra. It has these 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 mixes of, of systems and whatnot. So yeah, you have these two inauthentic chefs that are the popular ones. The, right. the authentic chefs is almost entirely lost to history. Um, uh, Although bits and pieces of it pop up in the Kubra. Right. So there's a transmission so, there, but it itself only yeah. survives in one and a half manuscripts that we know of. Yeah. In, in its original. And, and even the Kubra. I mean, the, uh, the Kubra has, there are bits of authentic Albuni in there. It's just mixed in with all kinds, all right. manner of other stuff. Um, and this goes on to be massively popular. Uh, there, there are, I, I hit at least 50 copies of it from the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, it moves into, lith- into lithography along with some of his authentic works. Uh, and then in 1904, it gets its first Cairo edition, and it has been continuously in print since from various uh, publishers, mainly in, in Cairo and Beirut, uh, uh, who all just pirate each other's editions and, and uh, put it out. And it is one of the most widely used and, and read texts on magic or letters or whatever you want to call it. I have read accounts that if you get down into West Africa, into Sub-Saharan Africa, any, any practitioner will have it sitting proudly on the shelf. Uh, it is mentioned favorably by some modern Shiite authors who, who tend to be much more sympathetic to, to the science of letters uh, in general today than, than many Sunni mm. uh, clerics. Uh, but that's interesting because it shows that although they're sympathetic to the science of letters, they're maybe not operating with high uh, quality control. Yes. Uh, 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 Al-Razad Dostar in his wonderful book, The, uh, the Iranian Metaphysicals, which is basically about modern occult New Age practice in, in Iran. A very interesting part of that book, he goes and essentially, I don't know if he formally is asking for, for fatwas for decisions, but he consults with a number of, of uh, Shi uh, uh, teacher clerics about the permissibility of these various disciplines. And, and the answers on letterism are very interesting. There, there's only one, one guy I think says no. But most of them say it is, it is licit to study uh, but you probably should try to practice it. But it's licit to study. You can learn things. So it's from maybe makruh, but it's definitely not makruh. Not even makruh. Just, yeah, just, just, you're just not qualified to try to practice Got it. it. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. That's not for you. Which is very much what Albuni says in many ways, you know, uh, at various points. So this is the thing that has come to represent Albuni uh, in the world. And of course, it is not by him. And this has been, you know, John Charles and I have been have been screaming this from the rooftops for the past decade now. I'm, um, I'm glad to give you a, um, a platform to scream it yeah. louder, but I, I feel like this text is incredibly important. Forget, let's forget about authorship. 
You know, in the same way as oh, when, oh, when, it's an immensely important when text. we talk about the, immensely the important Hermetic Kiranides, for example, right. a very influential right. uh, text in the Greek speaking world, we don't care that it's not by Hermes. Right. You know? right. <laughs> no, I, I, I personally, I mean, in my own research, I, I have a, a, a real interest in the authentic Alboni yeah. because I'm very interested in this moment in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries when letterism suddenly blows up. It just becomes, because Lutrism goes on to be massively important in Muslim thought right up to the modern period. As we should see. Mm. But I am very interested in this sort of moment of birth uh, and in what Alboni himself was really saying in order to then contrast and understand the development that happens with all the pseudepigraphy. So yes, it's an incredibly important work. Not what I'm terribly interested in, because I'm actually interested in the 13th century, not the not the 16th, 17th. You yeah. know? Um, but historically, uh, it's very important. Uh, and, I, you know, I, you could make an argument that, that sort of Nemo Booney, you know, the uh, Booney of memory, uh, is much more influential than this, this weird Sufi ever was. Right. Uh, uh, but I still think it's important to get at what yeah. El Booney himself was trying to uh, communicate. Um, there, there's one other legend about 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 Shamsamarov that, that needs uh, busting. Um which is the idea that there were three recensions of it or three redactions of it. And this is something, this idea, I think, originates again with Haji Khalifa, Katip Chalabi, whose Kafshan Zanun we were talking about uh, last time, uh, this great biographical work. Uh, and I believe he's the one who says there is a Shasam Arif, a Sohra, the small version, a Wusta, a medium version, and <laughs> yeah. a Kubra, a large version. Uh, and I think he's saying that because he was encountering numerous books in the libraries that had bore these titles on them. Now, it would be tempting to think, oh, the Sukra, that must be the authentic the authentic one. And maybe the Wusta is this medieval confection uh, from the 14th century, and then the Kubra is the Kubra. But even that's not right. Right. Uh, so they're, they're all, all pseudepigraphic works. None of them are by Booney, is what you're saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying that you can't rely on the title. I mean, you know, yeah. manuscript titling and manuscripts, uh, in terms of what gets written, if you get into manuscripts at all, you get very accustomed to the fact you might get six titles written on the on the flyleaf of a book that are, that are alternate titles. Uh, you get books where the author very clearly states what the title is and no one ever calls the book that. You know, it gets some other name that just becomes its name, despite the fact the author very clearly states what the name of the book is. But this idea of three redactions, of course, originally going on with that idea is this notion that Albuni himself produced three versions of this text. This big long version and these, these two little versions, which is nonsense uh, in terms of the, of the text itself. But what you find, even in the Mamluk period, you find copies of his work, Lata' of Farashadat, for example. There's a 14th century Kyrene copy of that, uh, that on the title page, in a very nice gilded title page, says Shem Samarif Asokra. So that idea, it's an old idea. Uh, I think a lot of it is marketing, honestly. I think a lot of it is, is, is booksellers uh, who are calling things this. There's another copy of the, the Lata'if that says, this is the Shamsam Arif of Albuni, but you've never even seen this version of it before. I mean, it's so, a total, total promotional material. And when does that come from? That's another, uh, I believe that's Mamluk. So it might already, be the 16th century. Already in the Mamluk period. Already in the Mamluk period, you that have title you has have a certain some cachet. confusion about about this, and right there's some cachet to it. So 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 you relabel the Tafasada, Shamsam Arif, and it 
flies off the shelves, presumably. Yeah. You know, and then people get home and they're like, Where, uh, "Where's where's the occult diagrams? Where's the love magic?" Well, there's tons of the, well, there's tons of diagrams in the Latif, but you're not yeah. going to find any love magic in there. And then you find around the same period, there's a 15th century copy of the courtly shams of the of the the medieval confected version that on the title page says Shamsamata Fokubra. And to my eye, and again, this is the difficult catechological calls, but the Kubra part is kind of written a little bit above. Like someone added in, a, in a hand that looks a little different to me. I think someone else may have thrown in thrown in the Kubra part at some point. Who knows when? You know, but at some point may have added the Kubra. Perhaps because there are copies of Latov going around labeled the Sobra. So someone was like, well, you got the Sobra, you got to have the Kubra. You know, so who knows? But something like that went on. Hmm. Uh, so you find copies of the Kubra, Shems labeled Kubra, that's not uncommon. You find copies of the Kubra, just called Shems of Latov, You know, it's basically just, it's uh, confused. And those three names don't really tell you much about the text you're going to find inside. Well, it's called the Kubra, you know, it's going to be the Kubra. But... But they don't tell you a whole lot. And the, the, the long habit well into the Western scholarship at Albuni of calling them recensions or redactions, as if Albuni himself put these out, uh, is another of these myths that, that has a lot of staying power that has to continually be beaten back. So it might be a thankless task, but a real comprehensive analysis of the not just manuscripts, but incunabula and everything of this work would be very valuable if well done, right? Oh, sure. I mean, well, which work? Of um, Shetsamata in general? Yeah. Sure, although you're dealing with very different texts. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's, it would be interesting to look at, let's look at all the texts that have flown under this title. But Yeah, that's but, what I'm saying. It'd be really cool. And, and maybe start looking at other things that are ingredients to it that aren't albuni, maybe identifying some of the ingredients. And just, it's, it's very fascinating to see how, it's very fascinating but very frustrating and always incomplete to see how certain kinds of text, like often magical for whatever reason, yeah. just yeah. have this propensity to remix and they yeah. do oh, it absolutely. spontaneously. Absolutely. And this is, yeah, there's this very important article by Janus uh, Vickum, uh, who's a, one of the venerable scholars of Arabic manuscript, uh, Arabic manuscript culture. And he wrote an article in 2007 called Gazing at the Sun that was basically just pointing out, one, that the Kubra is obviously not a 13th century text, and two, that modern scholarship has been rather lazy in relying on the printed editions when we have this massive number of, of Bunyan manuscripts. And he found one work in particular that is a, it's another confection from the 14th century with beautiful diagrams and lots of scary magic in it. Uh, uh, you know, and he brings that forward in this article, like, look at this amazing text that no one ever talks about that's in manuscript and shouldn't somebody dig in? And he fr- uh, coins this phrase, the Corpus Bonianum, which, of yeah. course, calls back to the Corpus Hermeticum. And, and a lot of his points, honestly, are wrong, like, once we got down to it. But this article certainly inspired me. This is my first year in grad school. This came out. Uh, and similarly inspired Jojo Cologne, a notion away. So, so the article certainly sparked yeah. this, this Let's new try to wave, get to the bottom of this. This new wave of research in Albuni and diving into this Corpus Bonianum, which actually ends up being less scattershot than, than Bickham you know, thinks it is in, in right. the article. It's not that hard to narrow down. I mean, John Charles and I both did it independently, a core of authentic works and then a bunch of other stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and what you're talking about, about this kind of historical overview of the text and all that, absolutely somebody should do that. 
Yeah. I'm not saying uh, you should do it. I'm yeah, just saying it, it would be an interesting thing to read the results of. It ain't going to be me. I've, I've got a, you know, a section uh, in the, the book on uh, Boone I'm working on now that, that oh, how do I call it? Something to the effect of getting out from under the shadow of the, the, of the, of the Shemsa Mahatma. Uh, the authentic Shemsa Mahatma is quite interesting for what it is. But I, I would like to affect something of a divorce between between the first thing that jumps to mind when you hear Albuni is Shamsa Mahatov. I, I mm-hmm. think that's, that's had deleterious effects Indeed. Uh, on, on the understanding of this stuff historically. And yeah. how much, as maybe as a final question, how much do you think your work has and how much do you think it will affect public perception in the Arab reading world, like in the Islamic right. world, right. where Albuni has this re- reception as the as the kind of scary Satan author. Well, and, and again, in some spaces, yes. In some yeah. spaces, he's still very venerated. And, right. And or, well, Shetzalmat Fokubra is very venerated and, and respected, you know. But then also, presumably, there are those those people who are who are interested in, in the in the Sufi pietist right. stuff. They're not interested in right. anything like love magic. They're interested in the spiritual practices and stuff like that, right? I'm always struck and pleased by the fact that on, on I don't know if most of your listeners know this, but on academia.edu, if you actually pay the subscription fee, you can see who's reading your stuff. Right. It actually tells you who's clicking on your stuff. Uh, and even if you don't do the subscription, you can, you can tell what country they're from. And I would say 70% plus of my readers on there, and everything I have is available, everything I've done thus far is available on there. I would say 70% plus of my readers come from the traditionally, the, the historically Muslim world. Right. Uh, including many from Saudi and other sort of deeply conservative uh, parts of the world. So I am heartened to see real interest, you know, coming from, from those places. Um, what effect it will have, you know, Sufism, some people like to talk about neo-Sufism in the 19th and 20th, 21st centuries. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that term. Uh, Sufism has always been quite flexible, adaptable. And quite neoing all the to, time. Well, right. It's very, it's, it's about reformation in a sense. I mean, it's, it's quite capable of, of reshaping itself as need be to, to suit conditions. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, most modern forms of Sufism, under the onslaught of, of Salafi accusations of, of, you know, a lot of Salafi thought of, Ibn Abdul Wahhab, the, the founder of what's come to be called Wahhabism, although his followers don't like that very much. You know, one of Wahhab's main, uh, uh, Wahhab's main moves is uh, kind of conflating all of Sufism with sorcery. Right. So it's a sensitive topic, and you don't want to, you know, I, I do, but it, it does cross my mind. I'm, I'm not trying to add fuel to the fire of, of Sufism and sorcery, but... I think it's important to acknowledge these these occult edges to Sufism, maybe not edges, these occult cores to Sufism, uh, particularly in the in the the late medieval or the modern periods. But modern Sufism now, I don't think it's going to grow a whole big appetite for Albuni. No, as a result of this work, I'm okay. sure there will be individuals, but but Sufism as as it exists now, as it has survived now in some parts of the world, uh, has done so by de-emphasizing many elements that were of central importance. Uh, in the pre-modern period, uh, like the veneration of saints and, and things like that. And that stuff still goes on, but there are many forms of Sufism that have really backed away from that stuff. Yeah. And Albuni's stuff is inextricable from that. I mean, I, I think I think a lot of what Albuni's doing in the Latat Falsharat and, and these other books is making claims about the power of the saints, about the power of Sufis. You know, this is an age when the notion of the the the, uh, the invisible hierarchy of Sufi saints that that really rules the world, despite yeah. what all these kings think. You know, 
these kinds of claims. They've been around. Rule the world and even maintain the cosmic order by their existence. Right, and they maintain the actual existence of the world. If the yeah. last saint dies, that's when the world goes poof. You know. Yeah. Uh, but those claims got quite political at times and all that. And I think Sufi, I, I think Albuni's making a real statement about about the power of the saints. And interestingly, he's kind of almost naturalizing or scientizing it by bringing in all the astrology. Yeah. Uh, the power of the saints isn't just a sort of straight-from-heaven miracle. It's working with the forces that make the world is what the saints do because yeah. they are part of those forces. You know, But it's very based in a medieval cosmology or a pre-modern cosmology. Uh, it's very based in the notion of the saints and the powers of the saints and all that in ways that are, are not terribly suited to most modern Muslim thought or most modern mm. Sufi thought. So no, I, I don't expect a big renaissance of, of Boonian letterism. What I, what I think uh, might be although there are people who are very interested in, in all yeah. this, you know. What I think might be very interesting though is the um, the potential for people to take the um, gee. There's a, there's a lot of what you might call magic in this stuff called Sufism, but also let's just in Islam, right? of course, pre-modern of course. Islam, and that's the message that. It seems to me a lot of the, let's call them takfiri, neo-Protestant hardliner uh, Muslims, they just don't know about it. It's secret history to them. Yes. Like this is forgot. This this is occluded, intentionally wiped out from history. Just like you know all the lovers of Western esotericism who think like, ah, I was never, I never learned in school that Isaac Newton was an alchemist. Right. Right, I just learned about him as this sort of proto-scientist in a white lab coat. One of, one of, one of the greatest... The same thing happens in the Islamic world. Obfuscations in modern thought is, is that in the, in the early late 19th, early 20th centuries, you had a, a rising Salafi movement, you know, a surging Salafi movement that was quite reformist, that while it claims, of course, to restore an original pristine Islam is utterly modern in its cosmology yeah. and its, and its, uh, its demands for textual clarity and, and whatnot. It's uh, like a whole host of Christian and Muslim and Jewish Orthodox movements. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is utterly modern. And the Salafis, along then with all these uh, German liberal Protestant trained scholars, uh, and of course German Protestants were not terribly fond of the occult either and their yep. visions of what's real and what's not or what's holy and what's not. And they very much in unison, they sort of co-produced this vision of Islam as this austere, uh, law-based, law-centered, monolithic, literalist movement. And it's, it's really an immense, and it has been effective, I and mean, it's transformed modern Islam in many ways. Right. But it's it's an immense loss of the the richness and variety and and uh, good old fashioned occult weirdness of, of so much so much Muslim thought you know um, back through the centuries, and you hear like I often hear on in, in the podcast sphere and stuff like this from people who are otherwise very very smart and, and know their stuff about magic. Uh, you will still hear references of oh well people doing astrology or magic in the in the Muslim world you know if you. If you dared speak about anything like that, off of your head. Right. And this this notion that the Muslim world was this incredibly orthodox, severe place where any kind of magic was instantly, any, any magician was put to death. And you can find, I mean, there, there are incidents. You can certainly find jurists who call for the execution of sorcerers and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the idea that, that pre-modern Muslim culture was inquisitorial somehow is is not just incorrect. It's It's... 
the opposite of what's true. You know? It's polemical in some cases as well. Oh, absolutely. But there is, you know, the main characteristic, I would say, of pre-modern Muslim thought is its openness. It is intensely inventive and creative and tolerant of ambiguity. This with uh, Thomas Bauer's Culture of Ambiguity book. Incredibly tolerant of ambiguity. Of, it is incredibly pluralist, you know. Uh, and the occult sciences thrived. They absolutely thrived. Particularly from the 13th century on, you have this, I would argue, this occult renaissance that, that overtakes, uh, well, the central Islamic world, Egypt and Syria, and, and, but spreads out. And in my opinion, just to take a jab at the Europeanists, I think the, the uh, sort of occult renaissance in Italy and whatnot in the Renaissance, as far as I'm concerned, is just a, just a wave that came across the Mediterranean and sort of splashed up on the shore in Italy. From, like, Central Asia? Well, no, from, from Egypt. From, yeah. from Egypt and Syria, I mean, that's what, what we sometimes call the central Islamic land. Yeah. Uh, I think that is a, a fairly pale reflection of a much bigger explosion of, of interest in these topics in the Muslim world from the 13th century on. And al is a real key ingredient in there. I mean, he's one of the guys who really unlocked the door uh, on that stuff. Uh, this is why his name comes up again and again and again in the context of, of almost anything occult. Yeah, I think he was, he was key to that renaissance. And it went on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And it's really only in the 19th and 20th centuries. And not only. There, there's some sort of indigenous reformist thought against the stuff even prior to European colonization. But then once much of the Muslim world gets colonized, that's when this, these transformations really take place. And these, yeah, these and also rewriting of history and forgetting Absolutely. history. Absolutely. And, and you have this odd, there's a canonization process within Western Islamic studies itself of what you need to read. Right to, to study Islam, it's part of why why Islamic manuscript studies is is still a fairly minor field. Uh, you can quite easily get your PhD in medieval Islam without ever touching a manuscript or learning anything about it, which is shameful because we have millions of them, millions and millions of manuscripts. As Adam Gatchik, one of the other kind of greats of Arabic manuscript studies, he estimated at most ten percent have ever been cataloged, much less read, studied, translated, edited. Uh, I always tell people who are, who are graduate students in this field, go into manuscript studies because you throw a rock and you make a discovery. You know, there's, there's so much out there to be found uh, that no one has looked at in hundreds of years. You know, uh, it's an immensely rich inheritance of, of texts and, and ideas. Get to work, people. Yeah. No, Gardner, you're the man. Stay esoteric. Keep, keep doing what you do.